0: The sermon this morning comes from Exodus 27 and 8. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This morning we have the distinct privilege of hearing from John Citima. John was our uh, former senior pastor at the Mandarin campus, and uh, God used him greatly in this vision that has become Christ Church East and Christ Church In Town. So uh, it is with great thanks that we get to hear from my brother this morning. John, won't you come bring us God's word, please? Thanks, brother. Good morning. Do Good morning. you ever have one of those moments when? your father or your mother said to you, don't do that again. You're bringing dishonor to my family name. My dad was big on that one. Um, Wasn't always aware of some of the stuff that he had done that brought dishonor to the family name because fathers like I often have very short memories about our own sins and long memories about the sins of our kids. But it gives you a little bit of an idea that this third commandment, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is a little bit of a bigger deal than just the prohibition against cursing. First thing I want to do this morning with you is to unpack the language of the commandment itself because very often in today's world people like you and I don't really get some of the nuances of a people who lived 3000 years ago so let's let's just look at that a minute exodus 20 you shall not take the name of yahweh in vain now i've i've preached here before sometimes and some of you may have heard me reference that the name Yahweh, which was on the screen here a little while ago as Jehovah and a little asterisk explaining the name and the meaning of Jehovah. Jehovah was the Latin variant of Yahweh, which was the Hebrew word that was based on the name God took for Himself in in the wilderness when He appeared to Moses at the burning bush. You remember the story? Moses is, you know, taking care of sheep for 40 years. 40 years, long time. Taking care of sheep for 40 years, and one day he sees a bush that's aflame, and it doesn't burn up. Now understand, this is like like one of those dry twig things that blows across the road in the heat of the summer in West Texas. You know, these tumbleweeds, this thing's aflame, and it should be gone in about that, that much time, and it doesn't. So Moses goes there, and and God speaks to him out of the bush, and they have a conversation, and God says, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and Moses says, yeah, right, and God says, no, really, you're going to go back to Egypt, and Moses says, well, when I get there, who do I tell them sent me? Kind of an interesting question, right? In other words, who are you, and what's this all about? And God says to him, I am that I am. Weird, huh? Kind of a weird sentence that replaces Bob or God or Jim, which is what we typically think of as names, these little short appellations that identify who we are. God goes on a little further and he says, you go tell them that I am has sent me. Now, what's important about that is that when Moses had previously lived in Egypt, he had dealt with an entire host of Egyptian gods. There was the God of the sun who had a name. There was the God of the Nile who had a name. There was the God of the insects that had a name. There was a God of blood that had a name. There was a God of... the the cattle that had a name, and oh by the way, every one of the of the ten plagues was God, the God who sent Moses squaring off against ten different Egyptian gods, showing each one of them to be nothing. So that when Israel comes out of the land of Egypt, God says to his people they were no gods there's nothing there at the end of their name but I am the God who is and that's what the name Yahweh means the God who is the God who continues to be and act so now he says in this commandment to these people when he's on Mount Sinai and they come to the to the base of the mountain and Moses says, I'm going to introduce you to your God, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, first person. Second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself one of them, one of them, one of the the no-gods, because I will hold you accountable. First, first person. Third commandment, he says, you shall not take the name of Yahweh in vain. Third person. He moves from first person to third person because the name is the person. The name is the person. that, that, that sounds a little bit philosophical. Let me bring that down a little bit. One of the most striking commercials I've ever seen on television was the commercial for LifeLock. You guys all know what LifeLock is in this world? In a world where everybody's worried about identity theft, this company makes a lot of money selling identity theft protection. And it was a commercial where the CEO of LifeLock put his social security number on the side of an 18-wheel truck and drove it around New York City. I saw that on TV, and I thought to myself, either that dude is really confident in his product, or he is absolutely certifiable. That, right? I mean, we all are concerned with our identity and what people can do if they steal our name they get that social security number, they get the address, they get the name of your mother and her, and her maiden name, and they can run with it. And before you know it, you're in a world of hurt, right? You, you get now, that name really is, wraps up all around you, your financial history, parents are concerned about their children's behavior because of their ethical reputation sometimes parents are more concerned about the kids behavior because of how it reflects on them but good parents are concerned about the kids behavior because of what happens to the kids reputation all the things that they post all the pictures all those little vine videos that can that can hurt you long term right? name is thus a synonym for identity. Take a look with me. It's, it, it, they're all listed on the listening guide. Take a look with me at Psalm 66. The, the psalmist is, is talking about the name of God, and he says, shout for joy to God all the earth. Shh, sing the glory of his name. Now, that, that's a beautiful phrase. Give weight Give credit, give credence, give substance to the track record of the God you have come to know. That's what that means. Give him credit for what? Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe. The earth worships you. It sings praises to you. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. He's awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. Why is the psalmist calling his people to give glory to the name of God? Because of what God had done. Because of what God had accomplished in delivering his people. He made a world. He saved the people. He was always there when we cried out to him. God is the God who loves us, who redeems us, Who cares for us. He's got a history with us. Right? And when the psalmist says. Give praise to the name of God. He's saying. Give weight. To a God who bears the weight. Of a reputation. Those gods of Egypt. ah, They couldn't keep the Nile from turning to blood. Because our God turned it to blood they couldn't stop the sun the great God of Egypt the Sun God our God turned the lights out at noon over and over and over our God's reputation proved him to be a God who acts on behalf of his people to redeem so when you read the third commandment and it says don't take the name of Yahweh in vain, that's, what, that's the nuance of name. It's don't, don't play with a God who has a history. Second thing I want you to notice is the phrase misuse. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Taking the name of God in vain has some nuances. There's, there's a verse in Isaiah that I think is interesting. Isaiah chapter 36 18 through 20, there's a, there's a commander of the uh, Assyrians named Rab, Rabshakeh, and he stands out in front of the, uh, the people of Judea, and he says, Sennacherib, the great king of Assyria, has come to take your land. Your king Hezekiah can't do anything to stop him. And then he gets, he gets here, he says in verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvium? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who of all the gods of these lands have ever delivered the lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. You catch what he's doing. He's saying, I don't care what you say your God has done. He can't save you from my boss. You know what that was? That was using the name of God, not to give weight to it, but to make a mockery of it. What does that look like today? It's not only a general standing in front of a people, it might be might be your doctor who gives you a difficult diagnosis and tells you it's most likely fatal, and you talk about your confidence in the Lord, and he gives you an answer that says, yeah, well, you've got God, but I've got science. It might, might be you who face a circumstance that is so difficult, so overwhelming, that even though you have a track record with God, you just don't believe He's going to show up at the moment, because the circumstances are more mighty than the God who has always acted in the past. And so your prayers, where you use the name of the Lord, are just kind of vain, they, just, they, don't, they don't have any weight. To them. Now there are some specific things throughout Scripture that are prohibited under the rubric of the third commandment, and I'll go through those real quick a minute. Several of them have to do with speech. There is, of course, the curse. And that's, that, that's not just, uh, you know, graphic sexual kind of speech, which is very popular in our culture today, and I mean we've lost almost the ability to discern that, but it, it's, it's the notion that you use the name of God to curse someone. That's forbidden in the Bible. Why? Well some people think it's because, you know, there's, there's something about the word itself that shouldn't be said in such contexts. That's, that's a strong history with the Jewish people. If you ever talk to a Jewish person or a person involved in Jewish ministry, he may write you an email back and says, in the name of G-D, they don't want to type out the whole name God. Because the tradition among the Jewish people is that if you don't use the name the whole thing, you can't abuse the name third commandment. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the accidental or the trivializing of the name of God. We're using, when we talk about cursing, we're using a name to call down God's power to condemn someone on your say-so. There's a similar one called sorcery. That's forbidden throughout the Old Testament, and it's mentioned in the New. That's the attempt to find a way to use the spiritual powers that be in support of your cause. Again, it's it's really using a name for your power. Sometimes Christians do that. I've, I've, I've heard Christians who use the name of Jesus almost like an incantation in a ritual. Not as a person to whom you speak, but as a name that you hope to use in a moment's circumstances. There's also the idea of the the, the notion of, of false prophecy where you use the name of the Lord, the word of the Lord, in order to teach something that's untrue, in, or, in, in order to bring somebody else down and bring yourself up. Or the, or the last one, which is a false oath. I swear to God, swear to God. We do it so easily in our culture. We, we, we pick the name of God and we, we, it, it slides trippingly off our tongue as a way for us to use His name, to use His power for our own agenda. Those are all speech variations, but they're not everything that there is. I think the essence of this whole commandment has to do with God's reputation and his people's reputation. I remember when I was ordained into the ministry my pastor said to me, when you preach don't play around because one of the most serious violations of the third commandment is a play around sermon that entertains or puts people to sleep but does not speak to their hearts. I thought, "Whoa. I just got serious." Well, that same kind of a thing could be said to talk to every one of us who bear a name. I want to tell you a story. A few years ago, Carol and I were in India with the mission that we represent. And we were in a a, a large gathering that was under tents. It was blazing hot, about 105 degrees, and it was in the the burning sun of India. And we got there about 11 o'clock in the morning. We were supposed to be there at 9.30, so we were right on time. And there were about four or five hundred people in an area about this size sitting on carpets that had been rolled out on the on the dirt and they were singing, and there were the Punjabi Indians in the front and when they sang uh, when they were singing worship songs they they danced the women got up and they danced, and they danced very aggressively and of course, there were the 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 Indian people from the province of Chennai and Tamil Nadu, and they were sitting there. They had the worship style of Presbyterians. It's a little bit more restrained. It's not near as much dancing, right? And so they were, they were looking at these people, and they were singing the same songs, but these people were dancing, and they, they weren't even raising their hands, right? There are some things that just cross cultures, you know what I mean? And there were other groups of people back there who didn't know these songs, but they knew others. And there were five different language groups represented. And so the worship was a cacophony of sounds and translators. And I preached, and I, I spoke one sentence, and then translation, 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 and then back to me, and I, where was I? And It, it, was, it, was, it was just strange. And, and then came the time when they wanted me to baptize the new people who had come to faith. Now by the time this worship service got started, about an hour later, the 400 had grown to 900 people. And not one of these people had been in Christ 18 months earlier. It was this marvelous testimony to God's grace breaking into the villages of India. So these people lined up and they... they, there were 100 and I think 105 that day, and just many, 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 many people, and they wanted to be baptized. Here, here was the interesting thing: all of the people in India are given the names, for the most part, of one of the Hindu gods of India. Paul Devakumar, whom our church here at Christ Church supports, told us one time that there are over 300 million gods in the Hindu religion. In other words. Anything God made, they give a name to it and worship it, except the God who made it. They don't worship Him. So there, if there's a rock in front of your house, you can paint it, you can call it your God, you pray to it. I sat next to a God once. It was painted yellow and red stripes, and it was a God. It was a rock. It was a rock and there is anything that has been made they will worship and these people are named for the Hindu gods but when they come to faith in Christ and they go under the water they come out of the water they want a new name now the first time that happened to us Carol and I were together and these people came out of the water and they cried out new name new name and I didn't know what that meant because nobody had tipped me that I had to come up with names and give these people a new name, which they were going to be known by the rest of their life. Now, I was okay with most of the men Bible characters, but when we had like 50 or 60 women, run through how many women Bible characters you know that don't bear the name of Tamar or Rahab the harlot, uh, you know, certain names you just don't want to go, go there, right? a lot of Marys, a lot of Marthas that day. We we ran through a whole bunch of names. Carol was in the back of her Bible running through giving me women's names and Ruth and Naomi and Mary and Martha and and, and just another Mary and Martha. we We just recycled them. But they wanted the name because they wanted something that identified them with the reputation of the God who had redeemed them by His grace. They wanted to be known by this story and their place in God's redemptive acts of love and mercy. They wanted to be known by that. They didn't want to be known by a no-God that did nothing except exact tribute from His people and never act in return. That reputation, the name of God, His history, His love, His mercy, and the mighty deeds that He had done for individuals and for His people throughout time, that's what they wanted to to, to hang on. So they wanted new names. Now when Keith called me a few months ago and asked me to preach today, he said, we're going to be doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and we're going to be talking in those commandments about how each one of those commandments isn't just rules and regulations by which we live, but they are God's way of protecting us. Rules protect when parents establish the rules of the house. The design is not just to keep the kids obedient, it's to protect the kids from destruction. Parents send their kids off to college and say, be very careful about this and about this and about protecting your, your identity. Be careful, because there are things out there that can hurt you. You've All, <laughs> all, all the kids who are in university heard that speech before they came to, to university. That, that's, that's common stuff. God protects us. How does he do that? By saying, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Let's pause here for a minute and realize something. His is a weighty name, This, this this is a name of substance. God's name is a name of significance. And when you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, you embrace him as a way of saying, I believe, I anchor the life that I live on the truth of who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he has given to me by grace. That's my identity. That's who I am. Everybody in this room has blown it. You know that, right? Everybody in this room who bears the name follower of Christ has failed at one time or another or repetitive time to live up to the name you claim to bear. This past week, a gunman walked into a community college room and asked people, are you a Christian? And the ones that said yes, he said, well, wonderful, then prepare to meet your God, and he shot him dead. That was more than an exercise in violence, that was an exercise in naming. And it was His declaration, your God cannot save you here. I will take your life. There's been speculation by the talking heads on every television show, every news channel ever since, why do these people do these things? And one of, the, one of the general consensus underneath lying all of this is they want a name for themselves. And that's why we're not going to mention their name on television, and we're not going to show their pictures, because maybe if we don't exalt their name, the next one won't do it. Trapped up with name. Well, you, you and I do that. We do that with the name of God that we bear. We bear the name of God who says the fruit of the Spirit is love, but we don't always love. Joy, <laughs> but sometimes joy is a long ways away from us. Peace, but we're willing to fight at a moment's notice. Goodness, but sometimes the motives of my heart are anything but good. Kindness, but I'm often judgmental, not kind. Self-control, a great thing for you to have. I don't have much of it, but good for you to have that, you should have that. You see my point? We bear the weighty name of God very poorly unless we bear it in Jesus. I want to take you to a couple of passages that remind you of your new name. I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 28. You remember the passage well. It's, we call it the Great Commission. It's that time when Jesus says, okay, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know what he's saying there, right? What he's saying there is I'm the new Adam to whom God once gave all authority and who blew it. I'm the dawning of the new humanity. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he turns to his disciples, he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize people, what, into the name. Of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Into the name. Why does he use that language? Because he's saying that when you come to God in me, the one who has taken your and my abusive, name-ruining pasts, all of the guilt, all of the sins, all of the reputation stuff that we've done that we try so desperately not to let everybody else know about, right? You, you, you know that. We've all got histories. You don't want your history out there. You don't want people to know what you've done. You don't want videos of that showing up. I'm so glad they didn't have Vine when I was a kid. Terrible. Terrible. You don't want your name out there, but God knows every bit of your story, every one of those those behaviors you committed, those words you spoke, those desires and thoughts you had, those things you did to others, all maybe while you bore the name of Christian. He knows them all. And he says to you, if you come to him in Christ, I'm going to give you my name, a new family name. I'm going to give you mine. Your past is washed clean. You're baptized into the name of the Father because he's the one who has scripted your life into the name of the son because he's the one who's washed you clean into the name of the spirit because he's the one who gives you new reasons new passion new desire new power to live according to the new family name baptism's important we we often get hung up as christians about the mode and the manner do we baptize by immersion or by sprinkling or by pouring? I've read thick books exposing opinions on each of those things. And, and we sometimes argue about whether only adults can be baptized when they come to faith in Christ. And then a sub-argument is what does the word adult mean? Does it, count, does it cover 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds? Or do we baptize infants? And if we baptize infants, how do do we justify that? Because there's no past... We get hung up when we start talking baptism. What we often forget is why baptism? Because it's initiation into the new people that Jesus Christ has created. And it's that moment when, like the Indian Christians, you get the new family name. And from that moment on, you bear that name. Now, the challenge is to bear that weighty name with seriousness of purpose. Not to trivialize it. Bear it with a light heart because your guilt has been taken away and all your violation of the name of God has been scrubbed clean. So you bear it with a light heart, but you bear it with seriousness of purpose. But I want, I want to encourage you a little bit this morning because I want you to recognize what God has said about you and your name. Take a look with me at Ezekiel. Strange, strange prophet to quote in this regard, but Ezekiel 48 includes a passage that at the, at the end of the chapter is, is really striking. It's Ezekiel 48 at, at the very end of the chapter. You may recognize the last paragraph of Ezekiel as being the paragraph that really gives meaning to the end of the book of Revelation when he talks about the new city, Jerusalem, and the size of the gates and and all that stuff. Here's the promise. He says, on on, on the circumference of the city of God. Now, if if you've read the Bible, if you've read the Bible, you know that like the word name which means reputation, the name city doesn't just mean a physical inhabitant of of, uh, population density, city often means the people. And in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, when he talks about the new Jerusalem, the city of God, he's talking about you. The, na- the, the circumference of the city is 18,000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on shall be Yahweh is there Yahweh is there the God who is who acts who does He lives with them When people find you living out your faith, do you know the the glorious good news that I get to tell you about this morning? When people see you living out your faith, this is what heaven sees. Yahweh's with them. God's at work in them. And remember when the elders, Kendall and Don will remember that, Ed wasn't here yet remember when we first began to talk about planting multiple congregations of this city and each congregation having multiple community groups and one of the visions that really galvanized our thoughts about Christ Church East we didn't know that would be its name yet but one of the thoughts was we would send you in community groups, wherever you live. We would send congregations to the various subcultures of Jacksonville. This one over here by the university, in town, near the centers of the arts and the business district. My hope always was that we'd get one on on, on the north side of town and reach into population groups that the Presbyterians have not always been good at reaching. I was always very passionate about getting a really skilled African American pastor and have him lead a Christ Church congregation on the north side. Wanted to do that. Why? Because I wanted the name to be lived out in a people whose daily life would be the announcement God is here you wanna see what God does in broken people's lives look at us we're a mess but we're a mess who have been gripped by a God who acts we're sinners who have been saved by a God who saves we're children who have been loved by a father who never fails see we get to live out the reputation of our God so that the world can see it so that the world can say ah, those people Yahweh is there God's at work in them not done yet that's the promise that's Ezekiel now I'm going to take you to the end of the Bible the book of Revelation chapter 3 Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Revelation is that, of course, the minute you open it, most people in our culture assume you're talking about the future. Uh, Trust me, this one's not talking about the future. This one's talking about you and every church throughout history. This is the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And he says here, verse 11, I'm coming soon. I want you to hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown, that's, that's metaphorical language that says, I want you to hang on to Christ with all your heart. I want you to take seriously the, the joy that is yours because he washed you clean from your sins and he made you citizens of a kingdom. Don't lose that crown. Hang on to him. Desperately. Desperately. Who was it? Luther that said, preach the gospel to yourself every morning because every night when you go to bed you forget it and you wake up tomorrow morning thinking your salvation is up to you. It isn't. It's on Him. He's given you that, that glory. He's announced that to you. He's given you the crown of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I charge you, hang on to it. Now watch. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What a vision. What a vision. In the temple of God, the place where God makes his earthly address. We get to be one of the pillars that hold up the roof. Oh boy, I get to be a rock? I get to be a stone? No, no, wait. Wait. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which, Greek language here is an active present, which is coming down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You are that people. You are that city. You are that community that is right now being formed by the God of heaven with his name on your forehead and on your hands and on your heart. What a thought. And why do you bear his name? Well, to give weight to his reputation why do you have to give weight to his reputation so that this broken world who trusts in no gods no dash gods, gods that are nothing, that have no substance so that this broken world will be able to see a people in whom God dwells. Because they are the temple of His Holy Spirit. My friends, you and I got a big job. We got to remember first that He took care of our reputation issues and gave us a new name. Secondly, we get to bear that name so that He is glorified and magnified. And thirdly, we get to proclaim that name so that others may know that our God is trustworthy and redeems. Bear that name with a light heart. Let's pray. Father, thanks for giving us a name thanks for redeeming us from our own thanks for cleaning up our reputation so that we by your grace can actually add to your reputation when our story of redemption is known Lord it's kind of a hard thing and it's counterintuitive to think that our past histories all the brokenness, all the sin all the times we've failed you When you redeem people like us, that story needs to be told because it adds to your fame. Help us be transparent about that. Bold about your story. Strong in your testimony. For Jesus' sake, amen.